What up, what up, what up? How's it going, everyone? Welcome back to episode two of season three, where we are diving right back into our series on sustainable coffee. I am really excited for you guys to hear the episode today. It is the first interview in the part of the series. The remaining five episodes will all be interviews. And we're going to be, again, traveling from tree to cup. Today, we are talking with Evie Smith. She is a researcher out of UC Davis. She has two master's degrees from UC Davis, one in international agricultural development. And at the time of this recording, which was last summer, July of 2020, she was working on another master's degree in horticulture and agronomy. She has since graduated and finished that degree and continues to work as a researcher at UC Davis. I was on Auburn's campus several years ago when I first met Evie, and she took me on an amazing tour of all the agricultural projects and programs, and in particular, the aquaponics that happens there on campus and that she was a part of. And then she went on to actually go to Cambodia with my nonprofit HarvestCraft, where she was an agricultural consultant for us and helped us when we were developing a agro-ecosystem for a rehabilitation center for human traffic victims there in Cambodia. And her and one of her colleagues went to Cambodia to help out with that project alongside of the other guys on the HarvestCraft team. So we've been connected for a while. It's been great to kind of follow alongside of her career. And I had a wonderful time learning all that she had been doing in Latin America and learning all about her research in coffee. So hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to Environmentality, a podcast for current environmental news, lectures, and interviews with the experts. I'm your host, Brendan Anthony. Let's dive on in. All right, everybody, welcome to the show. Today we have Evie Smith from UC Davis on with us today. And I'm so excited because we are going to be talking about coffee, everyone's favorite drink. So delicious, so energizing, and we're going to be talking to her about her experience in Guatemala in respect to coffee and also the things that she's doing at UC Davis. So thanks for coming on the show, Evie. I'm happy to be here. Thanks so much for uh, having me, Brendan. Of course, of course. Cool. So how about you just give a little bit of your background? What's your area of expertise? And how did you get interested in all this stuff? Yeah, totally. Um, so I studied agronomy and soils and horticulture at Auburn University. And so I was interested in agriculture through that work and then did a variety of international work and travel during that time in undergrad as well, including a trip with your nonprofit, Harvest Craft, as you yeah. know. Uh, <laughs> and then I, from Auburn, came to the University of California, Davis, UC Davis, and started a master's program in international agricultural development. I finished that program about a year ago, and I'm currently working on a master's program in horticulture and agronomy, still at UC Davis. So I've really been interested, I guess, since high school in working on issues around social justice and figuring out how to leverage the resources and opportunities that I have to make things in the world better. And I decided to go into agriculture in college because I saw it as a way to help people meet sort of the basic human need of being able to feed themselves. I identified that as something that I was really passionate about. And then I, I guess I spent a lot of time during high school and early undergrad focusing specifically on that goal and was pretty deep into my undergrad degree when I took a class um, at Auburn called Soils and Environment 
environmental quality with Dr. Matt Waters. And I learned about climate change from a totally different perspective than I guess I'd heard about it before. So I guess I'd always like grown up hearing about climate change and how it was killing the polar bears, you know, which is clearly important. (laughs) Um, But Dr. Waters in that class explained sort of the science behind climate change and how it was impacting people and and, Mm. um, how it was going to be impacting people even more so in the future. And so I think it was sort of because of that class and series of conversations that I realized that that it was important to me not just to be working in agriculture to help people be able to feed themselves better, but also that working towards more environmentally sustainable agriculture was significant because it could also help reduce or mitigate the effects of climate change on on people in addition to helping with that sort of feeding the world concept. Yeah. I love that. You know, it's something that I think that keeps coming up as we do interviews with other people on the show, but is that all of these environmental issues are so interconnected with social issues and human issues, and there's no way to untangle them and, and the need for holistic solutions to be able to address, you know, all the different realms is so critical. And, and so I love that, even for you, again, you saw that connection from very early on. And it was interesting. I think for me, I kind of came from it from like loving the environment and plants and then finding the connection to humans. Whereas it felt like you were primarily driving by like the social issues and then you found like the environment. So it's kind of cool to see all roads still lead to the same place, no matter your passion. So I love that. That's great. So then how did that, that passion for, again, connecting humans and ag and the environment then launch you to like an international arena? I guess I'd been interested in in working in developing c- countries again since high school sort of recognizing that in general in the United States like we have we are privileged in certain ways right sure. um yeah. and that sort of funneling s- some resources or using our resources to be able to invest internationally is important and significant yeah so I started working internationally and in agriculture at the same time, but in different places. So I had started my bachelor's program at Auburn, um, working in agriculture, and then took a semester off and did humanitarian work in El Salvador that had nothing to do with agriculture. Uh, (laughs) And then came back to Auburn and kept studying and then went back to El Salvador. And that was the first time that I sort of connected the two and just did some really tiny, you know, ag education stuff in the areas that I was working in El Salvador, but really, really loved it. Where at in El Salvador were you? I was based in San Salvador. Okay, great. Yeah, I've spent a lot of time in El Salvador as well. I don't know if we've ever really chatted about this, but I love El Salvador and I have, you know, a lot of friends out there. And actually someone that I'm going to have come on the show after you is a coffee farmer from El Salvador. Which is perfect. I love that. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I love it. So that'd be a good connection. That's great. So El Salvador, you were obviously falling in love with Latin culture, which I'm all about and a big fan. And then you obviously went to Cambodia with Harvestcraft and did some work there. Any other places you've done international work? Yeah. So after my time at Auburn, sort of in between undergrad and grad school, I went to India and I worked in India for, I interned in India for about six months with an organization organization called Kedi Varasat Mission, uh, which I just butchered the name of. I never mastered Hindi, <laughs> um, but they work on promoting organic agriculture in the Punjab state of India. Cool. And then, yeah. And then once I started graduate school, I've been working pretty much exclusively in Guatemala on development and research projects. Awesome. I love it. So, so yeah, give me the breakdown on what now you're studying in terms of your, I guess, what you studied for your initial master's, which was in international 
Agriculture? Yeah, international agricultural development. Awesome. Yeah. So um, for that project, I worked actually on a USDA funded project. And it was part of developing part of a certification course for agricultural extension workers in Guatemala. So just take a sec, because I know when I, you know, started learning about agriculture, I had no idea what extension was. So to explain to your listeners. So extensionists, also called technical assistance providers, often are people that connect farmers to agricultural research. And so they do things like go on farm visits to diagnose issues on farms and also conduct research on farms or on research stations and host field days to educate growers and help them connect with other growers and resources in their area. And often their work extends beyond just sort of the strict agriculture side of things to helping people access markets and make financial decisions about their agribusinesses and stuff like that. Um, so they can be from the public sector. The United States has an extensive public sector extension service, but they can also be from the private sector, like agrochemical dealers and equipment dealers or from NGOs or nonprofits. So I was working specifically on a module for established extension practitioners in Guatemala about agricultural value chains development. So another buzzword, um, wow. agricultural value chains, I know I wasn't familiar with even when I started on the project. Um, but a value chain is basically all of the steps that an agricultural commodity goes through from production on the farm to consumption. So farming, transportation, processing, sales, and it also includes all of the people and services that are associated with each of those steps. So when I was doing that work, I, I started out in Guatemala for three months and I was doing research on sort of any agricultural value chain that I came across in Guatemala, uh, which sort of amounted to interviewing everyone who would talk to me about any agricultural value chain that they were connected with. And so I looked a lot at things like avocados, um, as well as brassicas like broccoli and um cauliflower, things like that, fresh cut flowers. But the main one that I focused on was coffee, um, because that's one of the most economically important agricultural products in Guatemala. Um, and that one really caught my attention. I know we're going to talk about that a lot more later. But basically, I took that interview information and I tr- uh, sort of translated it into a training module about improving these value chains. And we've used that module to train extension practitioners in Guatemala like five or six times now. And so the goal is to better understand the value chains that are present in Guatemala and then equip that type of knowledge then for extension agent technical assistance so that they can then help service the agricultural industry in Guatemala. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. So yeah, I I just want to go back a little bit. So extension is such a beautiful thing because it allows this connection between the people who are doing the food production and the people who are kind of helping solve the issues and they kind of then communicate all the sciencey stuff and the big words and all that kind of stuff and just simplify it down, boil it down for growers to be able to just get the information that they really need in order to produce better, be more profitable, whatever that may be. And it's something that I think is so crucial and something that I think the United States has done really well with like the whole land grant institution model. And UC Davis is obviously the land grant of California. I'm at Colorado State land grant of Colorado. And so it's really amazing to see that that model not only be so successful here in the U.S., but then for that to then be kind of exported into some of these other nations where it can be so powerful for really helping empower farmers, you know, who are in, you know, less privileged areas. So it's awesome that you're working a part of that. I'm curious, as you were interviewing these farmers about the different value chains that they were a part of, were farmers more often than not a part of multiple value chains? Were there, was their production like highly diverse and were they integrated at all these different avenues? 
Yeah, you. I mean, you would see that quite a bit depending on sort of which region, obviously, that, that you're talking to people in, what sort of landscape and environment that, that we were looking at. But yeah, there were a lot of people that were growing multiple things on their land. So coffee started to become like this really prevalent value chain that obviously piqued your interest. Were you a big coffee drinker and big coffee fan before going down to Guatemala? I I was sort of in waves. I feel like a lot of people have that relationship with coffee where you drink sure. so much and then you're like addicted and you have to like back off. And then yeah, yeah. anyways, but uh, if anything, my experiences in Guatemala, Guatemala have solidified me as a permanent coffee drinker. <laughs> okay, good, good, good. <laughs> I love it. So Coffee became the kind of focal point. What is more or less the state of the coffee industry in Guatemala? Yeah, great question. So um, I'll give sort of, I guess, an overview generally and then talk about some of the big issues in the industry. So um, in Guatemala, there's 125,000 coffee producers or families associated with coffee production. And it's produced in 21 of the 22 departments in Guatemala. Departments are sort of the Guatemalan equivalent to United States states. So pretty ubiquitous. Um, 98% of producers in Guatemala are considered to be smallholder coffee producers, um, which means that they produce less than 20,000 pounds of coffee annually. So that's a pretty significant percentage, obviously. (laughs) And there's a huge sort of landscape diversity in terms of where coffee is produced in Guatemala. So you can see coffee growing, you know, up 60 degree slopes on the side of volcanoes or in rainforests or very flat lands. And that's a situation that's not unique to Guatemala. That's true of a lot of coffee producing countries. Guatemala, again, much like many coffee producing countries, there's challenging communication and transportation infrastructure. And so in terms of like that that um, communication and technical assistance element that we were talking about before, it can sometimes be really complicated or even, you know, transporting yeah. coffee from the farm to the processing plant or whatever to, to, the, to export can be challenging. A lot of coffee producing countries have what's called a national coffee association that plays a role in marketing and technical assistance, sometimes research. That's cool. true of Guatemala. The one in Guatemala is called Ana Café. Um, and so, yeah, they have a big role in technical assistance there. There are a couple of major recent challenges that have occurred in Guatemala and the coffee sector that are not unique to Guatemala, but definitely hit hard there. So the first one that I'll talk about is coffee leaf rust. Um, so coffee leaf rust is a, is a fungus um, and it infects the coffee plants. It colonizes the leaves. It's orange. That's why it's called rust. It ultimately covers so much of the leaves that it makes the leaves fall off. And those leaves can no longer send nutrients from the leaf to the fruit. And so it reduces the yield and also the quality of the coffee that's being produced. So so I, I want to chat on that just a bit before you move on to the, the other issues. And I'm sure there's other ones coming up. But so coffee leaf for us is so proliferant. It's in almost every coffee producing region in the world, correct? Just about, yeah. So, you know, something that was really interesting that I saw in El Salvador was that, you know, some of these shade grown certifications, and, and perhaps we can talk about that in a bit, are desiring trees to be obviously under, you know, the story, under the canopies of larger trees, right? The main reason why is because it's ecologically beneficial, right? It's symbiotic. There's a habitat all the things, the coffee obviously needs shade to grow. You talk about coffee being grown in a a lot of different landscapes, right? Even up at high altitude, where perhaps 
it's more there's more rain clouds it's a cooler environment and so then the need of a shade tree maybe perhaps becomes less necessary for coffee to grow at higher altitudes where the climate is cooler and so what was interesting is that i was seeing farmers in el salvador struggling with this tension of wanting to have the shade grown certification because they could get a higher price premium but if they were growing under shade in these cooler environments it was creating more moisture and with more moisture, you have more fungal pressure. And then they were having huge outbreaks of coffee leaf rust. So I'm curious, like, what's your perspective on that tension between a certification and then like the realities of production? Yeah, I think that that's, it's a really complicated point in any agricultural commodity. I think particularly in coffee, like I was talking about before, like coffee production situations are all so unique and it's grown in such a diversity of places and a lot of certifications, whether it's shade grown or rainforest alliance, or even some of the more socially focused ones like fair trade, you know, mm -hmm. there are frequently these sort of cookie cutter requirements that producers are asked to comply with in order to be able to receive the premium for having the certification and the farms aren't cookie cutter. And so it doesn't, the outcomes aren't always what even like the best intentioned certification sure. bodies hope or anticipate that they would be, you know? And so it's, it's complicated and growers have to be able to assess, you know, which, what is going to be more profitable or if profitability or if environmental impact is their main goal, then which one is going to have the better environmental impact? Because I mean, to take your example, right, with coffee leaf rust and shade grown, like there's obvious benefits to having more trees on your farm, right, in terms of carbon and, and just um, organic matter and those kinds of things. But if it means that you have to increase the amount of pesticides that you're spraying to, to prevent or kill coffee leaf rust, then like, is it actually environmentally better? You know? So, yeah, yeah. I mean, to your point, it's complicated. <laughs> yeah, it's complicated for sure, for sure. Okay, so let's go back to other issues. So, and, and to your point, do fungicides work on coffee leaf rust? How is the efficacy of like relevant and available chemicals? Yeah, so there are some preventative sprays, fungicides that um, people use that based on what we heard when we were talking with growers seem, seem to be pretty effective. Again, it depends on the context and how how much coffee leaf rust is on other people's farms nearby, you know, and how right. much wind is spreading it and those kinds of things. But and then there are also some things that growers are able to spray once they see an outbreak that seem to be pretty effective at at killing the coffee leaf rust. But I think you know, another issue with sort of any kind of agricultural pest is that you develop, the pest develops resistance after a while. Yeah. And so you have to switch up the chemistries that you're using or the strategies that you're using, right? Because chemistry isn't the only way that, that growers can prevent or reduce the amount of coffee leaf rust or whatever pest on their farms to make sure that they're not developing a resistant strain of yeah. coffee leaf rust on their farm, yeah. right? Yeah. Were you seeing any types of new varieties that had been bred for coffee leaf rust resistance being planted out in Guatemala? Yeah. I'm trying to remember the names of any of them. But there are definitely, I mean, growers are are really aware, obviously, of 
coffee leaf rust and frankly scared about it. And I think that's totally rational, you know, um, about greater than 70% of farms and coffee farms in Guatemala were impacted by the outbreak that was in 2011 to 2013, you know, it was huge. Um, And some people lost their entire production or almost, you know, and it takes years and years to recover that. So that sort of pushed people to renovate their farms and plant these varieties that were more um, supposed to be more resilient against coffee leaf rust. But that's complicated because there's often a trade-off in breeding between, I guess, the three that we focus on, right, are resilience and then yield and quality. And all three of those things are really important in coffee as in sort of any agricultural product, you know, but there's often quite a premium, a price premium for quality, um, which means that growers are able to support their families better and also reinvest in their farms more. If you are producing a higher yield, then obviously you have more income um, if you're able to sell it. And then these this resilience, like if you can't produce it at all, then, <laughs> you know, you get no money. So it's complicated because a lot of these rust resistant varieties are then compromise those other two things. Sure. Sure. No, that's well said. So you know, it's really difficult to find this perfect trifecta of pest resistance, quality coffee, and a high yielding variety. And I think a lot of, as you said, agriculture industries are striving, breeding efforts are striving for that perfect as, as well as, you know, drought resistant, you know, and, and all the other things that are now being imposed because of climate change. But let's go back. So, okay, so you start with coffee leaf for us. What are some other issues that Guatemalan coffee farmers are facing? Yeah, totally. I guess the other one that we were super aware of before we started doing our research in coffee was, or in Guatemala, was the coffee price crisis. So coffee prices have been low and volatile since pretty much since 1989 or the early 90s. And there have been a few landmark dips in coffee prices like since then, you know, in the last 30-ish years. Um, But the latest one was in 2018. um, So a year before we started our next round of research there. Um, And so the commodity price for a pound of coffee dipped below $1 per pound, which is way lower than the cost of production of a pound of coffee. So that's another big challenge that's been facing the coffee sector, not just in Guatemala, but sort of throughout the coffee world. Um, And so you see sort of as a combination of those two factors, as well as other environmental and social challenges, that coffee production is really declining in Guatemala. So explain, explain to me why, how is that possible? How can coffee be sold for less than what it can be produced for? Like what, what is driving this, this crisis? Yeah. Uh, again, I'll say it's super complicated. <laughs> uh, that's going to be my, my answer to everything about coffee. But I think that it's often striking to consumers of coffee, because if you walk into a coffee shop and, and buy a cup of coffee, you've paid $4 for like black coffee at this point. That's right? something, yeah, yeah. yeah. Black, black. I was going to say that might be a cheap cup of coffee. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, and then to find out that you know, coffee producers are often making at best 10% of that. Um, You sort of have to consider, and this is where the concept of value chains comes back in, you have to consider the number of people that are involved or sort of stops that coffee makes along the way from the producer to the consumer, right? And there have been some studies, and I can't tell you um, the citations for any of them, but the estimate, you know, up to 25, coffee changes hands up to 25 times between the producer and the consumer, you know? And so some of the money has to stop at each of those places along the way. But what you end up with when that happens, happens is that 
um, yeah, coffee, coffee producers are spending more money than they're making on actually producing their coffee, especially when you factor in these other challenges like Coffee Leaf Rust, where they're having to increase their investment in, you know, whether as agrochemicals or some other kind of input to make sure that they can increase the resilience of their farms, you know, so it's all tied up together as well. You know, so one of the interesting things that I saw in El Salvador, and, and obviously he'll come on, so he'll share more about it. But one of the interesting things I saw about trying to add more money to coffee production was shortening that value chain, shortening those 25 stops, right? And so he has now started to integrate his own processing facility, his own fermentation to try and add value to the coffee, right? He's processing in different ways. And, and perhaps we can touch on this in a little bit, but I found that to be such an interesting thing. And I've heard about you know, coalitions of coffee farmers coming together and they all invest and chip into a processing facility to again, try and shorten that chain so that they can keep more of that money in their pockets. Do you see that as a potential economic solution to the price crisis? I think that's, that can be part of it, you know? Um, and yeah. And I think that there are those things that, that growers can do at, at origin, right? So where coffee is produced to to shorten their value chains. I think a lot of it has to come as well from the buying part of the industry, you know, Um, and that the industry sort of as a whole has to recognize that the buying practices and the value chains that they create are not sustainable for their industry. And that the industry as a whole has to start sort of reimagining and restructuring how buying practices work so that there aren't so many, you know, middlemen or stops that the coffee has to make, you know, and there are, there are some buyers that are, or, you know, some, I guess, roasters and retailers that are making very active steps to shorten the value chain as well. Um, so there are terms that you hear about in coffee, things like direct trade or relationship coffee, where you see the buyers, right? And ultimately the retailers that are actually you know, visiting the coffee farms that they're buying their coffee from and they're meeting their producers and they're investing more in those relationships. And it and it not only shortens the value chain, right, because it takes out all of those other steps often or drastically shortens the value chain, but it also, because those relationships exist, sort of increases the, the farmer's ability to invest in their own agribusiness, you know, because they know that um, they have this person that's going to buy their coffee and they know how much they're going to buy, you know, and they know that they'll buy it again next year, you know. And so those are those are really great alternatives. You know, if you're a consumer that's that's concerned about making the coffee industry better, that's a really great place to start is like finding companies that advertise that that's the sort of, you know, buying model that they're using. That's just sure. one way, obviously. Yeah, no, it's a great way. So if I'm a consumer, I'm looking for things like the direct trade label. Am I talking to roasteries? Am I talking to coffee shops, asking them where they get their coffee? What, how would I frame that that question or what are the, the maybe certifications I can look for as a consumer? Yeah, that's a, another great question. So one of the big conversations that you hear a lot within the coffee industry, especially the specialty coffee industry, is around transparency and a, sort of a lack of transparency in the coffee industry as a whole, right? And so there are no certifications, to your point, about direct trade coffee or relationship coffee or like, we're actually doing something good in the coffee world, you know, like that's not a certification. Um, so it does require often like having conversations, which, you know, there's a lot of steps that go into that. Like not every not every coffee consumer has the ability to walk into a coffee shop and ask, sure. you know, the barista to ask the head roaster where they're buying their coffee from and everything. But that is, I mean, one way if you are able to do so, then just asking, you know, 
where does where is your coffee purchased? What kind of trade model do you use? You know, or buying model do you use? And sometimes it's on people's websites as well. So roaster retailers, if they're often if they're really invested in that trading model, they also want to promote that that's something that they're doing and rightfully so, right? Because it's good. Sure. Um, and yeah, so often, yeah. you know, you can do a little background research on on the internet and get some sort of an answer. So we've talked about coffee leaf rust, a fungal pathogen that inhibits leaves from photosynthesizing and, and giving energy to produce quality coffee. We talked about the price crisis and the coffee price being so low and there being so many steps in the value chain where uh, so much of that money gets drained throughout the way. Are there any other big issues that came to mind when you were doing your research that coffee producers are facing? I think that those are sort of the big tagline items that you hear about in the coffee industry. But if I can share a little bit more about sort of the next steps of the research that I was doing, we, through like our research team, learned about some other big factors that are at play in Guatemalan coffee production and coffee production largely that are impacting the industry. Be great. Yeah. So after after I did that sort of initial work in Guatemala, I came back and was super jazzed up um, for a lot of the reasons that we just talked about, about working in coffee, sort of moving forward and leveraging my agricultural training to, to invest in that industry. And so I decided to start another graduate degree at UC Davis in horticulture and agronomy, working in Dr. Patrick Brown's lab here and focusing on coffee production. And so I reached out to a colleague who'd recently started the International Agricultural Development Program, Lisa Artuso, um, who was also interested in doing coffee work. And she was a social scientist. So social scientists tend to focus their research more on understanding human behavior and decision making. And so we decided to sort of join forces with my agronomic, you know, biophysical sciences knowledge and her social science knowledge and do the first step of a longer research project doing an agronomic research needs assessment for smallholder coffee production in Guatemala. So our goal was to better understand what the biggest challenges facing coffee producers were sort of beyond what we knew about coffee leaf rust and the price crisis uh, so that we could then develop further research projects in our respective fields that could address some real needs that were actually facing producers in the sector, you know, and sort of in addition to that, we were hoping to understand through the interviews that we were conducting what motivates growers to make the farm management decisions that they make as well. So once we had results from our research, then we would be able to effectively communicate. So sort of going back to that extension piece that we were talking about before. So we spent three months in Guatemala. We collaborated with two private sector partners. One of them was a green coffee importer and exporter, Caravella Coffee, and the other one was an agricultural input company, Desagro. And both of those companies have technical assistance providers who work specifically with producers and, you know, have the trust of producers. And so they very generously drove us around and, and let us interview coffee yeah, producers. And that's them. so huge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Yeah. And so we, yeah, we did about 60 interviews and then came back and analyzed the data from those interviews and came up with four major sort of challenges facing the coffee industry in Guatemala. And some of them we've already talked about, but I'll just go ahead and list them and then maybe we can delve into a couple. So the first one was pests and diseases, obviously with a focus on coffee leaf rust. The second one was climate change um, and particularly changing rainfall patterns and how that was impacting coffee. The third one was price, again, that we've discussed. And then the fourth one was labor migration and limitations. Okay, so talk to me about how climate change then is impacting 
coffee production. You mentioned a little bit about rainfall. Coffee isn't irrigated, right? So they rely on rainfall. So how is this impacting coffee production? Yeah, exactly. So especially in a lot of places where coffee is predominantly produced by smallholder farmers, they're not able to irrigate the coffee. And so they depend completely on rain to irrigate the crop. So water is important, one, just from a plant health standpoint, right? Plants need water to survive. It's also important from a, a nutrient management standpoint. So plants are much more able to take up nutrients when they receive the nutrients in conjunction with water, right? And so part of what growers and extensionists were reporting or uh, were talking about was just that rain is a lot more unpredictable than it used to be uh, in Guatemala. And so in the past, there's sort of this like defined dry season and then a defined wet season. And so people knew when to put out the fertilizer because they knew it was going to rain and then the plants would be able to take it up. And, and that's not really the case so much anymore. And so that impacts both, or I guess all three plant yields, um, plant resilience, and then also quality of the coffee. So that's really complicated. And another big challenge that they were seeing around just like these changing rainfall patterns is that so coffee plants need that space of time where it's dry, and then they need the rainfall to to stimulate flowering. And the flowers obviously turn into the coffee cherries and ultimately the beans, right? And so they, but once it starts raining, the plants need it to continue to rain uh, or else the flowers will dry up and fall off and then you won't get the cherries and the beans. And so they're, they were seeing, or a lot of people reported that you would get the, the normal dry season and then you would get some rain, but then it, it's starting to stop raining after that. And so it's causing these huge reductions in yields in a lot of places in Guatemala. Um, because the flowers are just drying up and falling off a plant. So a lot of complicated issues around like unpredictable rainfall. Yeah, so it's interesting. So it's similar to like a normal tree losing its leaves in fall. It goes through a bit of a dormancy period. The difference is with coffee, it requires that infusion of rain to kind of kickstart and bloom. How long do those flowers stay open for and how long do they need that continuous rain and moisture for like good pollination, fruit set, all that kind of stuff? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it sort of depends on the other environmental context in the um, particular area that the plants are in. But we're talking about an order of months, I guess, not days. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Okay. So the unpredictability of rain throughout the whole entire growing season then is really influencing the yield. Right. Exactly. Okay. And so then as a result, they're not producing as much. And then in a situation where prices are already low, now they're having this compounded issue of not having as much yield. Right. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about labor. Then you touched on that. How is that impacting production and, and the issues with coffee producers? Yeah. So there's a huge amount of labor that's required for coffee production. And part of it is just like a steady crew for farm maintenance, like fertilization and also pruning the coffee trees and stuff like that um, to keep them healthy. And then labor needs triple or more during the harvest season. So ugh, coffee in most smallholder production situations, coffee is hand harvested. So someone is walking through the coffee farm and actually picking the particularly ripe cherries off of the plant and putting them in a basket. So it requires a ton of people to be able to do right. that. And they're not all ripe at the same time, right? So they have to keep coming back and taking the ones that are most ripe. Right, exactly. So on a lot of farms, you see like three or four 
they call them passes through. So they'll harvest a plant three or four different times. And that's another thing. So going back to climate change for a second, that's another thing that you're seeing more of is like because of like changing temperature as well as the changing rainfall, they're increasing the number of passes that you have to make on one tree or on one farm, right? So that's one issue around labor is that they need more people for more time during harvest now, right? Because they're having to harvest the trees more. And that's because all the fruit is not developing very uniformly because of the lack of rainfall? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And then another thing that you're saying, on top of just these increased labor needs, there's also increased labor migration out of Guatemala, um, either to places like the United States or even just to neighboring countries. Like we heard a lot of people are migrating to Honduras, just places where where people can get paid more for their labor. Mm. Um, so there's a labor shortage on top of the increased labor needs, you know. And so that sort of compounds with the issues you're talking about around climate change or like if you if you don't harvest sort of the first round of ripe cherries at the right time, then they're going to rot on the plant, you know, and then you reduce your yields and quality. And then if you miss the next one, it just, it, it keeps compounding and compounding. We we developed this sort of diagram of these issues through our research project and we called it the cycle of death, right? Because it just keeps going <laughs> and going and going. <laughs> Very uplifting. <laughs> yeah. So, and I would assume that, you know, if you miss, let's say the a first pass and the fruit starts to rot on the tree, that then just adds to more pest pressure. And again, like you said, the cycle of death and issues. Right. Exactly. So, okay, so four kind of main issues. We have pest pressure, mainly fungal pathogens and coffee leaf rust, pricing, climate change, and now labor. So obviously a lot of issues surrounding all of it. Let's try and end this on a a positive note. What are some potential solutions, strategies, research that you guys are engaged with, education that's being taken place, uh, supply chain that's changing? You know, what are some uh, solutions and strategies that you're doing or that you've seen in the industry that are taking place to try and mitigate some of these issues? Yeah, totally. One thing that we're really excited about and invested in is that you're starting to see some more investment in high quality technical assistance provision from the private sector in the coffee industry. And so you're seeing in some cases, and I guess another thing that I would say is that I would encourage more coffee companies to do this, but you're seeing more communication between the buyers and the the coffee producers. And so just sort of more understanding of needs and perspectives along the value chain is really critical for producers to to know where to invest their time and efforts on their farms, right? What was that term you used? Coffee in relationship? Yeah, relationship coffee. Relationship yeah. coffee. Yeah. Like yeah. So that's huge. Another thing that's really important to so coffee, there's been like a much lower investment in coffee research and development than you see in a lot of other agricultural commodities. And so it's I think it's really important to sort of ramp up the agricultural R&D around coffee. And you're starting to see that from some academic institutions. A little plug for UC Davis here. Uh, we're, we're doing a lot of work. We're doing some work here around that. Um, another organization that's doing a lot of work in coffee research and development with a particular focus towards climate change adaptation is World Coffee Research. And they were established a few years ago and are doing a lot of a lot of work in that Um, And where is World Coffee Research located? Everywhere. They are doing trials 
don't quote me on these numbers, but I believe somewhere around 30 different countries. They're doing some research like planting different coffee varieties in different environmental conditions or under different management conditions and seeing how the plants do and then using that information to serve as a guide for informing technical assistance providers about how to inform the growers that they work with, you know, so really important work that hasn't been done up until this point on a large scale. So it's almost like an approach to try and find genetic solutions to environmental problems by trying to evaluate more cultivars, perhaps breed new cultivars that again are going to be more drought resistant. They don't need as much rain maybe to bloom or, or they can be more resistant to fungal pathogens or to other, you know, pests that coffee face, you know, coffee berry borers, another really big issue. But so that's, that's really cool to see that research starting to kick off to really help encourage and mitigate some of the issues that are happening with coffee production worldwide, really. Mm-hmm. So what else, what else is UC Davis and what else are you doing with coffee there on campus? Yeah. So UC Davis several years ago started a coffee research center on campus. And so a lot of the work was is focused on sensory and consumer science, but there's a branch of the coffee research center that's also focusing more on these agronomic or agricultural issues or sort of the intersection between social science and agriculture in the coffee producing world. Um, so I think there's about 50 professors that are associated with that work here on campus, wow. um, which is really exciting. It's, 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 it's an exciting time to be a Davis and, and to be a part of the center as it grows and sort of finds its mission and, and establishes these research projects. And then there are several uh, coffee courses on campus as well. So another thing that I think is really important and exciting about the industry, the coffee industry, is that um, there's sort of increased consumer education in uh, around coffee, which can obviously lead to more responsible buying practices and swaying these big entities in the coffee industry to, to make more responsible decisions, right? And so there's a couple of courses, but I'll highlight one because I'm involved with it. There, So I guess two or three years ago, a team from plant sciences here at Davis um, started developing a course called Just Coffee, just in quotation marks as in justice. And it's an online course that's sort of a high level overview of the coffee industry. Um, and it's it's geared towards undergraduate students. We usually have, so we've been teaching it now for about two years, um, and we usually have about 200 students every quarter. And we go through, you know, the economics around coffee and some of the issues related to that. And we talk about the history of coffee and the sort of biophysical sciences aspects and development issues around coffee and social justice and those kinds of things. So just getting to introduce these very important global issues to undergraduate students is a really exciting way that UC Davis is investing in, you know, consumer education um, and student education here. So I love it. It sounds like UC Davis is doing a lot of really unique and amazing stuff to educate consumers. You're obviously involved in all of that, and I love it. And I'm so grateful for you sharing all your expertise and just knowledge about the topic. I was curious if we could just leave maybe one lasting action for everyday coffee consumers like myself. And you, if you wanted to try and help with some of these issues, whether it be one or all of them, what would be the best way as everyday coffee consumer to try and challenge these issues? Yeah, that's a great question. 
I think I'll sort of return to a theme that we've been talking about a lot through this, but just um, educating yourself and then making decisions based on what you learn, you know? And so I sort of alluded to earlier that a lot of, you know, coffee retailers have information on their websites about particular initiatives that they're doing to to help support coffee growers or make the industry more sustainable. And I would just encourage coffee consumers to read through that, read it with a critical eye, decide if what they're doing is something that you want to support financially by by investing in the company, by purchasing your coffee, um, or if there's something that you think could be better and if and see if there's somebody else that's doing doing that instead, you know. But I think that just like with many positive changes, educating oneself and thinking critically uh, and then acting based on that is is the best way to contribute positive solutions. Well it Okay, you heard it here, folks. Grab a cup of coffee, do some homework, and look for some of this relationship coffee, direct trade coffee. Have some great conversations with your local coffee shop and roastery and find ways where you can help combat some of these issues. All right. Well, thank you so much, Evie. Thank you for coming on and sharing all about the world of coffee. I learned a ton, and I hope the listeners did too. So thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me.